Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Rock. And I'm Brendan Collins, and welcome, Ball Stars, one and all, to another episode of the Balls Over the Top podcast. And we've got quite the treat for you guys this week. There's some European football, there's some, I mean, European competitions, obviously some league play, and some, you know, just insurrection of a, uh, of a pitch. And so, naturally, we had so much fun last time that we decided to run it back again. We are going to bring with you tonight... A good friend of the show and resident Manchester United fan, Tom Leahy. Welcome back, Tom. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Tom. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Yeah, always a pleasure, buddy. So, we had, uh, well, you and I both have some reasons to be happy right now. Looking at the European yeah. competitions, we're actually going to start with that uh, this week. We had the semifinals unfold in both the Champions League and the Europa League, and you know, why don't we start with the little brothers here? The Europa League matched up, or, uh, matches finished up today, and boy, the one side we had super high scoring, and another side we had super low scoring. Yeah. On one hand, we saw Manchester United just book its way into the final, losing the second leg three to two to Roma. However. After their six to two thrashing in the first leg, really the result was never in doubt. No, this was pretty much a foregone conclusion, especially after that first leg. But uh, defense was looking a little bit like Swiss cheese there. <laughs> Look, I mean, it's it's obvious. Man of the match for United was David de Gea. Had an unbelievable game. Really, for me, I mean, I've. Look, I like Dean Henderson. He, he's a great keeper, but David De Gea is still my number one, and 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 he showed why tonight. He was he was unstoppable. I mean, the goals that did go in, he he could do nothing about. It was just shambolic defending. Luke Shaw didn't have a good night. Paul Pogba didn't have a good night. Aaron Wan-Bissaka didn't have a good night. Fred was all over the place. So you know, when the guys in front of you aren't performing, it's tough to stop those shots. I think we We're saw the final. Finally, Ole's first final. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think we saw De Gea really, you know, reasserting himself as an elite global keeper because there's been whispers, there's been talks of him maybe losing the job. You know, a lot of the old guards of keepers that we've seen, Hugo Uri, even Manuel Neuer, David De Gea, have been taking a little bit of a step back this season, it seemed. And so it was good to see De Gea really reassert himself as not only United's number one, but on the global scene as well, especially with the Euros coming up this summer. Yeah, I mean, I still think that the United job is not definitely his spot because Dean Henderson has proven himself to be a a capable replacement. But I think tonight showed that he he's still one of the best goalkeepers in the world. And even if Dean Henderson next season, Dean Henderson and David De Gea are competing for the number one spot, United certainly cannot complain about having two fantastic world-class goalkeeping options. It's a good problem to have, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember coming off the heels of that as a Chelsea fan when we had Petr Cech and Courtois. It was just like, yeah, it's a it's an abundance of riches there. A luxury. I do have to say, though, I, I would be a little bit concerned. I don't know if it's managing, if it was the manager didn't have the right mindset with the players, but this wasn't, this was by no means a reserve squad for United. I mean, this was a... No. This was a formidable side, and they were really outplayed by Roma, especially in the second half. And you wonder if it was just uh, the lack of intensity, you know, knowing that they had that big aggregate cushion. But it's got to raise some question marks moving into the last five games of the season for you guys, having that one extra one still in hand now, as well as 
with the Europa League final now coming up at the end of the month. Yeah, you know, Ole said in his pre-match conference yesterday that he had described it to his players as you have to get through four halves of football. And first half today, I thought we were absolutely dominant. Edison Cavani was unstoppable. Bruno Fernandes was having a great game. That Cavani goal um, was just gorgeous. That that oh for God. oh my goodness. He is a he's a world class number nine, and and I. I have been reading that he is closer than ever to signing an extension with the club. And he's been linked with a move away back to South America to Boca Juniors in Argentina. But I've been I'm I'm very hopeful that we can keep him because he is he's a goal scorer and I'd like to have seen him start more games this season in the league. Uh I think he's certainly had a much better impact than Anthony Martial. He he's played like 15 games fewer. So you know he's a he's a top player, but second half, I mean, it was just it was tough to watch. I was getting nervous because you know Roma had that comeback win against Barcelona, uh, yeah, against Barcelona in the Champions League. Was it two, three years ago? I was I was at, getting a little nervous. At, like, at one point too, I mean, the aggregate looked a little close. I mean, it was something like what seven to four at one point. Mm-hmm. That's not insurmountable, especially with the pressure that Roma had. And, and not to mention, more so than the pressure Roma had with how shoddy United's defense looked. Oh, well, yeah, mean, the defense just yeah. stopped stopped going on the runs. Just making yeah. poor, mental mistakes, making physical mistakes. It's definitely going to need to be straightened up because that Villarreal side that they're going to face in the final is no joke. And Really good. Yeah, I mean, this might be a perfect time to hop over to that. You know, on the other side yeah. of this, the other semifinal where we saw 14 total goals, well, no, 12 total goals in the United and Roma uh, matchups. We saw a total of three and none in this second leg that just unfolded. But it had to have been a really big moment for Unai Emery coming back against his old club. Oh, yeah. Especially after you could argue that they rushed on from him. I mean, Arsenal hasn't been phenomenal since Wenger left. Hell, they weren't phenomenal even with Wenger the last decade. Yeah, they they haven't been phenomenal for a very long time. They haven't been phenomenal since they had Thierry Henry. But, you know, (laughs) this is a, uh, this is... 2004, maybe? (laughs) Exactly. So, th- but this is a manager who I imagine felt could have felt a little slighted by the way that they moved on, especially to move on to Mikel Arteta, who had little to no management experience yeah. at that point. And and it's not like they were breaking the bank to give Emery everything he needed. No, exactly. And and so the fact that I imagine this was a big, you know, vindicating moment for him, and and he he probably ch- channeled that emotion and passion into his players. Yeah, so this is the first season. Next season will be the first season that Arsenal will be without European football since, I think, 1992, and fully deserved. What what, They could sign back up for the Super Cup, the Super League. Underachieved, underperformed. Yeah, that's right. They could try to get back into the Super League. But they, you know, this is a team that has no leadership. I mean, I look at the, the Arsenal side. You know, Obama Yang wears the armband, but... I don't know how much of a leader he is. Uh, Granit Xhaka was the captain until he um, was stripped of that title after clashing with fans and, and players. And I cannot think of another Arsenal player that I would give the armband to. Maybe Kieran Tierney is a future Arsenal captain, but he's had injury problems this season. I mean, Arsenal 
are a team in free fall. Now, that said, I think they have to give Mikel Arteta more time and they have to back him in this transfer window. But really, I mean, if, if they don't finish in a European place next season or they don't look like they're going to finish in a European place next season, they've got to change and they've got to make some, some big changes. And really, the problem is it's not just the players. The players are not playing well or Arteta gets his tactics wrong, but it's what's happening in the boardroom at Arsenal. They're just, there's no stability and there's no vision and the whole club is in a really bad state. Well, and you know, you got to think that this is a Villarreal side that really had a rough season in their domestic league. I mean, they're they're nowhere close to being able to finish top four. Uh, it's pretty much just four teams competing for the, those those spots over there in Spain. But you got to give credit, especially to some of their significant players on that team, really stepped up. We saw Raul Albiol score the the second goal in the in the first leg that ended up being the goal that was the difference maker, and then of course I always got to give credit to my boy, one of my favorite players in world football, Danny Parejo, who just seems year in and year out is just nothing but class. Well, and also just he's a I mean he's the epitome of speed doesn't completely win you the game he he can slow down football matches by himself and it's incredible to watch yeah i mean he reminds me a lot of tony cruz where tony cruz obviously gets all of the credit for being a world cup winner with germany for for his uh being a stalwart on that real madrid side but you could argue danny pareo has been doing it just as well with way less talent around him for for a long time i was surprised when he left valencia last summer i you know, Valencia are, are another club that's kind of in free fall. They've been selling a lot of their players that, you know, uh, and, and Danny Parejo had been the captain of Valencia uh, for, for many years. And uh, I was a bit surprised that, that he left for Villarreal, but um, he has been unbelievable. I mean, like, like Bernie says, he just dictates the pace of, of play and is able to control the game, kind of like Thiago did when he was at Bayern Munich, not so much this season at Liverpool, but just has that way of dictating the game and picking out the perfect pass. Um, what a player. What a player. Unbelievable. And, and we can't overlook the performance by Sergio Asensio. He had a, yeah. a fantastic semifinal, both legs. I mean, allowing one goal over, over two matches, albeit yeah. to an Arsenal side that seems like they couldn't buy a goal right now. But you got to give credit where credit's due. And I also, like, I already shouted him out once, but I'm just amazed that Raul Albiol is still doing it. I mean, he's been around so forever, and again, just so good. just such a beast back there. He's he's just like the conductor of the entire team, and he's uh, you know he made that move from Napoli, and he's just slotted in really well. And to be honest, he had a much more composed game, and I think he's about the same age than Sergio Ramos did in the game against Chelsea yesterday. Yeah, well, and, well, that's a perfect segue there. Yeah, Tom. perfect segue there because we we can move up from uh, from you know the little brothers competition to really where the mm-hmm. big where the where the big boys play, you know. And what, uh, such a little competition when you guys won it a couple years ago, <laughs> and you were texting me about all, all the exclamation points in your text messages. But sure, go ahead. Hey, hey, that's just because I was thrilled to be playing in the Champions League the next year, where oh, otherwise we would have missed out on the competition. Um, of course, but. We saw some pretty fantastic semifinals in the Champions League, and 
I guess we'll start with my boys in blue. You know, Chelsea end up continuing uh, their Cinderella run in the Champions League here. And it's been it's been phenomenal. I mean, Thomas Tuchel has these boys playing out of their minds. They end up with the two to nil victory over Real Madrid in the second leg. It was it was just a thing of beauty. I mean, Mason Mount's second goal was out of this world. Timo Werner ends up heading in a goal from a yard and a half out off of the Kai Havertz miss. But the team was just clicking. I mean, from start to finish, Chelsea looked like the better side. It was it was a dominant performance. Yeah, very much so wire to wire. Can we can we all agree on this call and everywhere else around the world that Angola Conte is the best midfielder yeah. in world football? At he's the he's definitely the best defensive midfielder. Box to box for sure. Yeah, okay. And he was he was all over the place yesterday. I mean, he he, he had the assist. Or he was the uh, main facilitator yeah, of both goals. Yeah, and Thomas Tuchel has has changed his 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 style a bit. So he's not so much sitting in the number six. Actually, it's funny. I was I was just going to say the Claude Makélélé role, but actually, Claude Makélélé said today, "Can we now call that the Angola Conte position?" He's not so much sitting in that number six before the, you know, in front of the central defenders anymore. He's 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 been given license, and he just runs constantly. He's like the Energizer Bunny. Well, and really, he's the he's the antithesis of the of the Danny Parejos of the Tony Cruises, where mm-hmm. he he dictate he dictates the pace by setting the pace that no one else can yeah. keep up with, with his 18 lungs <laughs> and his third kidney. Yeah, he's just a motor. Like, he's just... The, anybody, nobody on the pitch is safe when they get the ball because N'Golo Conte is going to be on them like white on rice in in seconds. And if that wasn't scary enough, he's smiling the whole time. Yeah, he loves it. I mean, I, I read a very funny quote today. It, it was actually from back when he was on Leicester. And Claudio Ranieri said at a press conference that N'Golo Conte sprints the entire training session. And that he told N'Golo Conte, you don't need to run so much. You know, save your energy, save your energy. And then a minute later, he turns around and he's still sprinting. And he told him, he goes, you know, N'Golo, if you went out wide and put the ball into the box, you'd probably end up heading it in yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's true. I mean, he's just, his football intelligence is another level. He's just such a good player. And everyone's talking about the rise of Riyad Mahrez and N'Golo Kante from just like seven or eight years ago, playing League Two football in France and then joining Leicester and then just never looking back. I mean, just unbelievable stories, unbelievable players. Well, And the other thing you got to give Kante credit for is with how much pressure he's putting on the entire match. Like I said, nobody on the other opposing team is safe with the ball. He takes an incredibly low amount of fouls. I mean, you very rarely ever see N'Golo Conte getting carded for starters. I mean, I know he, I I think he did take a yellow this past semifinal, but he, he's, I I don't know if I, he's ever gotten a red. Like he's never being reckless despite the pressure. Well, he barely tackles, but somehow he gets comes away with the ball all the time. It makes almost no sense. It's like he's able to step into their stride and just change the direction. You know, so when, when Frank Lampard started this season, the focus of everyone was on the young attacking talent that he had assembled, right? And it was all on, oh, my God, how is he going to be able to play all these players? Who's in, who's out, where are they going to play, who's going to fit in? And now that Thomas Tuchel, is in charge. I think that the focus has shifted more towards defending. 
Um, and that's where the credit should be due. I mean, you know, Jose Mourinho's quote was famous, that if you give me 11 Aspilicuetas, I'll win you the Champions League. I mean, that seemed prescient. He was unbelievable against Madrid. Thiago Silva, his, his magic wand of, a, of, of distribution and the way he reads danger is, is second to none. Um, Tony Rudiger with his face mask uh, was also unbelievable. You I mean, mean Batman? He has completely... Batman, exactly. He has completely turned the focus of Chelsea around from a side with unlimited attacking talent, which they still have, to a defensive machine. And it seems like the loss against West Brom didn't affect them at all. No, I mean, they've been they've been just rolling. And it's pretty crazy because you, you think about it. You know, he's taken these players who just months ago, I mean, you and I were having the conversations on the phone, Tom, just months ago talking about, Oh, you know, I don't think Andreas Christensen's a Premier League defender. I don't know if Kurt Zuma or, or Rudiger or these guys have what it takes to be playing week in and week out in the Premier League. And yet, with this new system, with, with Tuchel, I mean, he heck, he's even got Kepa playing well in net. Like, he, he's gotten the, the pressure that they're able to provide the whole match, led, of course, by N'Golo Kante, but has created just a, a pretty much an impenetrable wall back there. I mean, they're even the most potent attacks look come up stale against this defense. Yeah, it, it's been So can I just say something? Oh, go ahead, Don. Sorry, Bernie. I I I am just since since Mike said it, I was curious. In Angola Conte's entire career, entire professional career, he has received and this is going back to the 11-12 season when 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 he was in League 2 and it covers every competition he's played in. He's received 53 yellow cards. Okay. He has received one red card. And it wasn't a straight. It was a second yellow. And that was in, and I can tell you right now, that was in a league game when he was playing for Cannes in the 2014-15 season. Meaning he has gone seven years or six years without collecting a single second yellow. or He's never gotten a straight red in his career. Just like I like to know that. And, and here's the rough math. That's about close to 300 matches. Uh, yeah, at 344, actually. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's like one, one yellow card every seven games. When, <laughs> like, you're, making, when you're making a, a significant number of tackles each game. That's his job. He's a number six. He's supposed to get into tackles, and he does it, and does it cleanly every time. It really is unbelievable. I've been saying it for years. I mean, I think he's so underrated. And even now, as he's getting more recognition, it feels as though he's almost still somehow underrated. He's bad at slide tackling. And, and he's 30, by yeah. the way. He's 30 years old now. Yeah, so, I mean, he's still got a few years left in the tank. Um, but we can take that moment to pop over to the other semifinal that happened this week. And we saw Manchester City hold on, not really even hold on, you could say pretty convincingly, eliminate Paris Saint-Germain from the Champions League, setting up an all-English final, and also paving the way for what will end up being the fourth matchup between Chelsea and Manchester City this season after Chelsea knocked out City in the FA Cup semifinals. But Pep's really got to yeah. be confident. I mean, that team is purring right now. Phil Foden's looking unbelievable. Riyad Mahrez is in an incredible run of form. Obviously, whenever Kevin De Bruyne is on the pitch, he's got his fingerprints all over the match. Possibly transfer of the year with Ruben Diaz. 
Ex- oh God. Well, it's the same thing, you know, like with Chelsea. I mean, Manchester City, their defense has been impenetrable. Uh, this is, I think it's going to be a low scoring final because both defenses are, are impossible to get through. And uh, this could be a final that goes into extra time or maybe even penalties because it's, it's going to be tough for these clubs to, uh, to break each other down. I have a feeling, it's not Pep's style to sit back, but I have a feeling that Thomas Tuchel is going to let his team absorb a lot of pressure. And that's going to make it a tough game. Well, and, and you know, it seems as though, again, obviously it's not going to be the exact same 11s on each side and the circumstances right. are a lot bigger, right. but we did just see the similar match unfold in that FA Cup semifinal. Mm-hmm. And really, and, and Chelsea won that game pretty convincingly. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea had the more chances, and their defense looked more smothered. I mean, they had more space, it seemed like, to operate with possession. And so I'm curious how that works, and I'm even more curious as to what this upcoming weekend's matchup is going to look like. Because as we shift our focus toward the Premier League, you see that these two teams are set to play each other this upcoming weekend, and... I wonder, is is this going to be a match where both guys are really fighting hard to win it? Obviously, City can wrap up their Premier League title chase, but I could also see both of these managers playing their hands fairly close to the chest, not wanting to give too much away for their upcoming, you know, considering the stakes of the Champions League final and considering, no no offense to United and your guys' efforts here, but it does not look like realistic that you guys will end up catching them for the title so maybe the urgency isn't quite there as far as playing it more cautious than aggressive uh yeah I'm, i disagree i think that pep wants to have it wrapped up so he can turn his focus to the champions league final and what better way to, t- to prepare for that than against your champions league opponent well, i get i get that and that's definitely a fair point but with with two managers who are tacticians at heart they're not like leaders of men like you see their 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 core is at their tactical prowess i feel like they're going to be very reserved it's going to be a very uh, almost like a formality really i don't anticipate either one of them going for the throat in a in a league matchup where they don't have a ton on the line chelsea does i mean chelsea are in a position where between third and sixth is seven points. At this stage in the season, that's not a lot. West Ham are breathing down their neck. I mean, Leicester are in their typical end-of-season freefall. But I think, I don't know, I think Chelsea are going to want to win this game. I mean, we know how City are going to play, right? It's going to be it's going to be lots of pressure, high line, uh, low block, um, and, and dominant possession. I, I don't think it doesn't matter what 11 Pep puts out there. It's going to be the way they play. Um, it, it's going to be interesting. It's, 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 it's almost like a test match. But I think... Um, I think Pep wants to wrap this league up as soon as possible so he can rotate more uh, ahead of the Champions League final, uh, which, I mean, surely has to be his focus now. I mean, I agree, Mike. United are not catching City as much as I hate to say that. But I think that Pep wants to have it all wrapped up so he can he can rest some players and and, uh, and, and, and turn his attention to the one that's gotten away from City all these years. Well, it's definitely going to be a great final to watch on May 29th, and it's gonna it's on a Saturday, which is exciting. A nice weekend. It is, and if I could just add one thing about the final. You know, so I, 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 I was reading today that, um, you know, it's, it's an all-English final, and it's currently scheduled to take place in Istanbul, but Turkey is under 
lockdown due to their COVID numbers right now. And there's been some talk about moving the final to England. Actually, Aston Villa have offered Villa Park to host the Champions League final, which would be pretty remarkable. I'd imagine it'd be at Wembley or something. I'm just curious what you guys think. Do you think that that would set a bad precedent? Or do you think that might be a good idea given the situation? I think in the current situation, that could be a good idea as long as they weren't going to a park that had any form of bias toward one side or the other. I, I like that right. this is held at a neutral ground for the final, and you risk that by bringing it closer to home. But again, a, a, a venue like Villa Park could be a, a perfect option for these two clubs, and I think that would be best because it would give the most amount of fans, as many as the UK government is allowing right now, which you know we've seen up to, I believe, 20,000 fans even at certain events. It would be good to see the supporters back in the stands, and I think that's less likely if it's held in Istanbul. I think there's good parts to it. It is a good idea if you can bring it home, especially with all the travel restrictions and, and the, the COVID protocols and the fact that it is going to be limited capacity anyway, so having fans in there in whatever numbers that you have them, I think that's all well and good. The only reason I don't like it, I think, is the fact that there's been a lot of chaos in the English footballing fandom world, and I think bringing the Champions League home is a wonderful stage for people who would like to see a lot of disruption. Well, this is true. I mean, we definitely did see some disruption in England this past week. And uh, I'm sure, Tom, you'll have some stuff to say about that in just a moment. But it was a, uh, it, you're right, it could open the door. You know, there are no teams in Turkey that were mad at the Super Cup, Super League, other than maybe, you know, Galatasaray fans might have been a little peeved by it. But, you know, it, it does open up Pandora's box a little bit. I mean, so, so, the, so the Premier League are going to allow for the last two match weeks up to 10,000 home fans. So that means that there's going to be no away fans. So, for example, Fulham play Manchester United on the penultimate weekend of the season at Old Trafford. It'll be the first time that fans... Well, I guess not. But I was going to say the first time that fans are in the stadium. But um, <laughs> for, for a match, actually watching it... Uh, in the first time, time that fans are allowed in the stadium yeah. is the... Uh... <laughs> yes, I guess that's... The, yeah, they've, they've shown their tickets. The steward has said, all right, after you then, not not kicking down gates. Again, we'll get to that in a second. But I don't know how I feel about only allowing home fans, because I think that might, for a team that needs points, like let's say, for example, hypothetically, that a club like Burnley or Newcastle... I mean, you could even say you could even say Fulham. Facing, well, Fulham, Fulham for sure. Yeah, exactly. They need points, and does does putting them in a situation where they are playing in a stadium where they have none of their own fans and only the home fans at what is arguably, again, already an intimidating place to be. You know, they were talking about allowing some away fans, but they scrapped that idea. But now it's only home fans, and I, uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you if you guys think there's any competitive advantage for that. Potentially, but I don't have an issue with it, with the restrictions going on right now and everything, and this is the first dipping your toes into getting fans back in the stands. I I don't think it's that damaging. You know, these are all professionals. If, if it were a packed house at Old Trafford, you know, the marginal amount of away fans that are there would be overpowered by the amount of home fans in the stands. And so, yes, I do think, you know, it could be tough saying there's no representation there, but 
for only two matches with everything going on, and this is their first attempt to get people back in the seats, I think this is acceptable. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think I'm kind of in, in a similar vein. If it was the second half of the season, you were only going to allow the 10,000 home fans, I would be like, mm, pump the brakes. That seems like a stupid idea. But with two games left, I mean, there were 34 other weeks, you know, that, that you that you had your chances to pick up points. You can't cry foul now that there's fans there and right. be like, oh, the competitive advantage was overwhelming. It's like, was it overwhelming when you, when you drop points to... When you went to all of these other stadiums and still drop points, despite the fact that no fans yeah. were there? Yeah, like, it, yeah. So, exactly. I mean, it, it seems dumb to have that arbitrary, like, as only home fans, it's like, are you going to enforce that? You're going to, like, take blood samples and, like, make sure that, you know, it's only <laughs> Manchester United in your blood? But, like, it, I... I get the idea behind it, and I don't think it's I don't think it's in, in any way damaging, but it seems kind of a little foolhardy. Yeah, I don't know. I I um, it's equal in the sense that it's if it's the last two match weeks, that means you get one one home, one away. Generally, I mean, sometimes you have the rare opportunity, the rare situation where it's uh, you play the last two home and the last two away. That's not usually very common, but uh, in that sense, you know, it's it's a good thing, especially looking forward to the Euros in the summer when there's going to be fans in the stadium. I think it's a good testing event. Plus, there were fans at the uh, League Cup final. There's going to be fans at the FA Cup final. Uh, there will be fans at the Champions League final, whether it's in Istanbul or somewhere else. So I think it's. I, I agree it's reasonable. I, I don't think it gives too much of a competitive advantage, and particularly, I mean, in, in United's case, since our home form has been less exciting than our away form has this season, I think maybe it doesn't make too much of a difference. Well, I, I actually heard. I also think, you know, it would also be a different story if they were like, oh, we're allowing 100% capacity, but no away fans. No. Like, having 10,000 people there in those stadiums, right. it, it, it looks like a, you know, Miami Marlins game. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's like a good day for the Marlins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we cracked 10K? But uh, wow. we, we did have just about every match get played this past weekend, and we saw some important results. We saw City notch a 2-0 victory bringing their magic number down to three points to secure the title and uh, or a Manchester United loss. We saw Gareth Bale and the Tottenham Hotspurs beat up over last place Sheffield United. I mean, Gareth Bale grabbing a hat trick, it feels like shouldn't be surprising, but with how terrible Tottenham have been for just for stretches, hasn't been, they haven't been consistently awful. They've been awful for just long stretches, and then they pick up points, and then it's back down again. But Bale finds a a little hot run of form in, in just one half and gets a lot of damage done. Yep. We also saw... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say Gareth Bale was unstoppable. Uh, he had the best game I've seen him play since the Champions League final against Liverpool uh, when he had that those two unbelievable goals. If I'm Gareth Bale and Tottenham appoint the right person next season, which in my view should be Eddie Howe, then uh, I think he should stay with Spurs. I don't know why he'd want to go back to Real Madrid, particularly after they're, they're knocked out now the Champions League, they might be doing a clear out, including Zidane if they don't win the league. I'd come back to Tottenham and he, he's been very impactful when he's been playing. And Jose Mourinho, who's now taking over at, at Roma next season, didn't play him enough. But if I were him, I would, I'd stay at Spurs. Yeah. And we, a couple other just important score lines from the weekend. We saw 
I'll bring this up because I'm a homer. Chelsea had their 2-0 victory with Kai Havertz netting a brace. Good to see him getting on the score sheet. And I think that really boosted his confidence to have a pretty fantastic match in the semifinal for the Champions League. It's good to see him rounding into form when it seemed like he was just being misused or played out of position for much of the year. And uh, we also saw West Ham stay in fifth with an Antonio Brace against Burnley. Keeps them on pace, keeps them in the conversation for European football, especially with, on Friday, the first match of the week, Leicester, as you mentioned earlier, slipping right into their end-of-season collapse, manages only a one-to-one draw against Southampton. They now fall. Their lead over Chelsea in fourth place is now down to only two points, and their lead between them and fifth place is down to only five. So it's definitely going to be a tight remainder of the season there. But I do think the biggest headline of the weekend was the match that was not played this weekend. As... You don't want to talk about Everton Villa. You want to just go back. <laughs> Oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the 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 incredible Everton Villa match. No, but uh, but you know, really, with all eyes on them, uh, the fact that it could have resulted in City lifting the trophy, and not to mention, I mean, the heated rivalry, United versus versus Liverpool at Old Trafford, is always one that I know you circle on the calendar. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I've had a, almost a week to think about it, and I'm still entirely conflicted. So. So here are my definite thoughts. Well, actually, real quick, we'll lay down, lay out what actually happened because I know we've danced around yeah. it, and so so yeah, yeah, yeah. give the All definitive right. description of what happened. Okay, fair enough. So since the European Super League debacle, United supporters groups, most particularly the United Supporters Trust, have been planning protests at this game. It was known that it was going to happen um, against the, the ownership of the Glazer family of the club which has never been popular since they bought the club in 2005, which I have railed against. I've got a green and gold scarf myself. I'm not a a Glazer fan. I'm not sure who is, to be quite honest with you. But um, So United fans gathered at Old Trafford at 9 o'clock in the morning. It was a midday kickoff, I believe. Maybe it was mid-morning. I I don't remember the exact time of the kickoff UK time, but um, gathered outside Old Trafford in significant numbers. Police estimated there were about 5,000 people there, which is the most people that have been at Old Trafford since the last home game of the season, last season. And players also went to the Lowry Hotel, which is where the United players always stay the night before a home match, with the aim, actually, and of, of, of keeping the players from getting into the team bus to go to the to the stadium, it was it was the goal of the protesters to to disrupt the game because they figured that would disrupt TV revenues for the Glazers. Uh, that's not exactly what happened, but um, after a few hours of, of peaceful protest, about 150 or so United supporters went down the Munich Tunnel, which is on the I believe it's the west side of the stadium. And at, at first, the report was that a United steward opened the gate, but after reviewing CCTV footage, it was pretty clear they that went to VAR. United fans, yeah, they went to VAR. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> they went to VAR. And it was obvious that uh, it was clear and obvious that the United fans had kicked down this gate and broke into the stadium and found their way to the pitch. Some fans found their way into the dressing room. Others found their way into the owner's box. 
but the ones that were on the pitch, it was mostly nonchalant from what I could tell. People taking selfies. One guy scored an unbelievable overhead kick while his friend report, uh, recorded it. Very impressive. But unfortunately, a few others decided to cause some damage. They they destroyed some, some media cameras. They threw flares up at the pundit's box where Sky, it's actually Gary Neville and, and Jamie Carragher were, were stationed. And then after they were kind of rounded up after about 15, 20 minutes or so, by this point, the police had started pushing people away from the stadium. And uh, that's when some fans threw glass bottles at the police and uh, and, and, the, and, and the police horses. And um, actually, one officer uh, had to get stitches on his face. Um, they had a damaged eye socket, uh, so it got out of hand. And and then after a little while, it was it was resolved. But but because of the security breach and and the COVID protocol breaches, the match was suspended. It's now going to be played on on the 13th of May. So so how do I feel about it? Is a good question as a United fan. Well, I I I. I I'm very much on the side of a change in ownership. The Glazers have um, have done nothing but saddle the club with debt. I mean, every year we pay tens and tens of millions of pounds towards just servicing the interest on the debt. But they still take their dividends, and they've taken a lot of money out of the club. And they're not they're not present. Um, they're not they're not like Steve Parrish at Crystal Palace, for example, or or the former owner of Leicester, um, and and now his son, who are you know. They go to the games. They're active in, in transfers. You know, not the Glazers. So I, 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 I fully support the protest itself. I think the United fans had every right and every reason to protest. I obviously do not condone the more violent behavior, and it's it's been good to see that United have said that anybody who's been identified as as causing damage or, or injuring police will be banned. And it's now a police matter, which is good. I, I think the story since then has mostly been about the violence uh, and about has it done more harm than good? Arguably, yes. But then a couple days later, a Sky reporter tried to ask Joel Glazer a couple of questions in Florida about United, about, you know, are fans just customers to you? And he, he, he didn't even look at her. He just kept his head down and walked to his beautiful car. If I'm not mistaken, it was a Maserati uh, crossover mm-hmm. and drove off without saying a word. Like, you know, he's, he's some criminal mob boss coming down the stairs of, uh, of the courthouse house and not, not wanting to speak to the media. It's, it's not good. It's not a good situation. And I think postponing the game was unfortunate because I think every United fan wants to see that game. But, um, the, the club's in a, in a bad state. I, I, um, I would like to see the club be sold, but there's no way that it's going to be sold for less than four billion pounds. It's not going to happen. And I don't know if another group can put together that money. But I, um, I, I, I think that the protest overall was important. I think it, it sent the right message that we're done with these owners. You know, the, the, the Super League was the last straw. It was not. This was not about the Super League. This was about 16 years of neglect and poor decision making and, and greed and greed. So I, I'm, I'm on the fence because it was it did get out of hand. But I think overall, I would say uh, the protest was a good thing. I would. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the cause that they're behind is a worthy one. Uh, I think that a lot of these ownership groups, especially of, of the major clubs, a lot of the Super League clubs, don't have the fans' best interest in heart, don't have the game's best interest in heart. And when they neglect their team and the fans year in and year out, as as the Glazers have done, 
it's you're bound it's bound to come to a head at some point you know i i actually think what does it say when i'm sitting here almost feeling fortunate at the ownership of Roman Abramovich, who, you know, at, at, you could, at the very least, you could say this, Abramovich loves his club and will do anything to try and help them win. Where the Glazers, it, it's just a source of income for them, you know? Yeah, and 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 it, it's funny about Abramovich because, like, two years ago, he he seemed to show no interest in the club after his visa had been revoked. And, and everyone was like, oh, does he still care? And and Chelsea are the first club to announce that there will be supporters who can attend and voice their opinions at board meetings, yeah. um, which is huge. I mean, they don't have voting rights, but that's an enormous step. And, you know, that, that should be... I'm kind of on the fence about the 50 plus one model because you'd have to basically buy out all these very wealthy people and that'd be a lot of money. I don't know who can put that together. And then you have someone like Daniel Ek and Thierry Henry and Patrick Vieira and these guys who were talking about buying Arsenal from Stan Kroenke and his family. I mean, it's it's it started a really important conversation about money and sports. And, you know, I get the irony of, oh, you're complaining about your billionaire owners when you want to, you know, when you buy Paul Pogba for a hundred million, or you want to buy Jaden Sancho for a hundred million, or Harry Kane for hundred thirty million, but it's different strengthening your squad with the money that the club generates because of its success and because of its owners who care. I mean, take the other extreme. You're a Newcastle United supporter, and you've got Mike Ashley, who has put almost no money into the club since he bought it. Everybody hates him. He's he's they've they've languished at the bottom of the table. They've gotten relegated a couple times. And then when these Saudi owners come to purchase the club, everyone else goes up in arms because of, rightly so, Saudi Arabia's appalling human rights record. But Newcastle fans shrug their shoulders and go, yeah, but we should be able to have a say on who owns our club and how much money they put in. I don't know. It goes both ways. It's, it's a, it, it, it comes down to your club tribalism, I guess. Every club is different, but which is why I'm not sure 50 plus one would fit. That's kind of a one-size-fits-all solution. But on a club-by-club -club level, something's got to be done and for united the glazers have to sell yeah i mean it's certainly moved the conversation forward and even more into the forefront we can you know we can nitpick and critique the manner and some of the behavior especially of those individuals who resorted to violence or who resorted to destruction of you know what should be considered almost a sacred yeah. ground yeah. you know if you're a fan yeah. of these clubs your your home pitch should be almost it's a holy place you know yeah and just just as a general rule when you're protesting if there's a guy in a bear skin and he's painted different colors and he's trying to lead you into a building you just don't follow him you just you let that guy go and you stay where you are you know it's, it's funny mike said the same thing when we were talking about it on sunday he, he said this is eerily reminiscent of um, the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol building. And I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's, it's, it, was, it was certainly the one similarity between the two is that everyone knew it was coming and nobody did anything about it. Yeah. That's just the less, one similarity. Just, the there were just less guns at, at Old Trafford. Not no guns, well, just less guns. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we made, we made that comment as well. I said if this were in the States, they'd yeah. be just coming in guns blazing. And thank well, goodness for that. I mean, not, that's a terrible way to handle all, things, but yeah. <laughs> all credit to the Greater Manchester Police, because they really, I think, they handled the response really well. I mean, there should have maybe been a, a greater police presence at the start of it, but they were very, even in the face of, of violence from some supporters, 
they were very professional and very very measured in their response, which I think was actually great. But now, now of course, the United fans have 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 hurt the team because the the game has been rearranged to May thirteenth, and now we play Villa on the ninth, Leicester on the eleventh, Liverpool on the thirteenth. That's three games in four days, five days. Yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. Yeah, that's a slog. And these are those are three tough games: Villa away, Leicester home, Liverpool home. But three tough opponents, and that's that's not good. Yeah, especially when now we have a European final ahead of us. Yeah, with three in the top half of the table, back to back to back. That's that's a rough go of it for sure. Well, Tom, I know. uh, Just looking at my watch here, I know we're kind of up against it time wise. And so, do you have any closing thoughts before you uh, before you bug out here? Yeah, thank you, Mike, for uh, keeping tabs on my schedule. I would have totally blown through it from having such a wonderful time here. But uh, the last thing I'll say is, I wanted to just raise the uh, the final old firm match of the season: Rangers versus Celtic on Sunday. Um, Rangers, of course, lifted the. Scottish trophy for the first time in nine years, ending Celtic's run of nine in a row, and there would have been the first team to win ten in a row in any major European league uh, in history. Ended that run with a staggering 24-point difference from first to second place. Um, And um, what a terrible Celtic performance again. I mean, the team this season, if you don't follow Scottish football closely, you only know that there are really two teams, right? It's Rangers or Celtic. Uh, uh, excuse you. Excuse you. Excuse you. And, and Kilmarnock. Thank you. Sorry, Mike. Thank you. Yes. And, and Kilmarnock. <laughs> um, but, um, but, I mean, Rangers have had it all to themselves this season, and they beat Celtic 4-1 to one at, at Ebrox at Rangers Stadium. Scott Brown's 44th and final Old Firm derby after after 14 years at the club at Celtic and 10 of those as captain. Uh, he's joining Aberdeen as player coach next season. Horrible way to go out for him. But the Celtic team, I mean, Neil Lennon quit about two months ago after just an awful season. John Kennedy is the interim manager. He was Neil Lennon's first team coach. I mean, what a fall from grace. And and, and, and this is kind of what we were talking about on the last time I was in the show about the strength of some of these leagues. You know, the Scottish League historically was one of the biggest leagues in Europe, and they have just completely fallen. And, and Rangers, you know, credit to them. Steven Gerrard has had an unbelievable tenure as Rangers manager and he's gotten the best out of his players they've made some really smart transfer moves and I actually Rangers to win it again next season and now they're they're able to qualify for the Champions League for next season and depending on who they come up against, might be in the group stages, which would be pretty exciting. Yeah, well, definitely we want to keep an eye on them, you know, and and that'll be exciting too. We talked about this before, getting more of those teams in the European competitions. And and Steven Gerrard's side has proven far and away that they deserve to be there. Before you go, there is one more topic I wanted us to bring up, and that is we we almost missed it for the second week in a row. The Premier League Hall of Fame was announced. Yes. And obviously, there were two members. They said it was going to be an eight-member class as the inaugural class. And there are two people who are already announced shoe-ins, basically non-negotiable. And that's Thierry Henry and Alan Shearer, obviously the latter of which the all-time leading scorer. And Thierry Henry's impact can't be understated. But they put out a list, a short list of, of, I believe it's 23 players who uh, will, people will vote 
to make up the final six. And there are a lot of great names on there. I mean, really just some some all-time, uh, obviously, they're in the shortlist for the Premier League Hall of Fame. Some all-time great players on there. Personally, out of the list, I'm really excited. If it were my vote, if I could only pick three, of course, and a lot of this is biased, but I'd be going Didier Drogba because, quite frankly, I think in order to be qualified for the Premier League Hall of Fame, or really any Hall of Fame for that matter, we, we're very familiar with Hall of Fames here in the U.S., you need to be the best player in your league at your position for at least some period of time, right? And I think Didier Drogba for a few years, maybe that, you know, 2005 to 2007 range was the best striker in the Premier League. And so uh, he's also my favorite athlete of all time. So naturally, I'm going to be choosing him. But, uh, you know, I think that you look at some of these other players and it's like, they're good, but were they the best? And and so with my other two, I, I would probably pick Robin Van Persie, who, again... Right up there, one of the best in in the world for a time between Arsenal and his United career. And then I got to go with Frank Lampard, given he he the tenure he had, the scoring he had from midfield. I mean, he's high up there on the all-time Premier League scoring list, despite being a central midfielder. That's incredible. And so, in my mind, those are three that have to be in this inaugural class. Uh, what? How about you, Tom? Who, who are three that you just think can't be left off of this inaugural Hall of Fame class? Well, of course, I can't hide my biases either, so I have to go with Paul Scholes, who was just an all-around player, could play any position, was absolutely dominant in the midfield for United for the longest time, 20-year career, won everything, was just humble but a genius, and was really just so much fun to watch he he just turned games on his own so he is my obvious first choice Patrick Vieira is my next he was another unbelievable midfielder for Arsenal during their Invincibles period and, and in the 90s you know rivals with with Paul Scholes and 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 Alex Ferguson and then my last one throwing it back a little bit further is Matt Letissier um, from Southampton, who was just a goal-scoring menace, and and he, he like he's one of those players who he doesn't score normal goals. He's kind of like Olivier Giroud, except more clinical in that regard. Like he he would only score outrageous goals, and and a lot of them. And he was um, what a player he was. And and I you know I would have loved to have seen him on United too, but he was he was at his peak of his powers on on Southampton and was. Uh, absolutely, in, in my mind, deserves to be inducted. And uh, Bernie, obviously turning it over to you, uh, quite a short list to choose from here. Who are your three? Well, I think I'm going to start it off. I think the man between the posts always matters quite a bit, and when you have somebody who's built like a Danish barn, it's a good thing, and I think Peter Schmeichel definitely deserves his consideration. Also, shockingly, being the only keeper featured on the list, if you really prioritize goaltending it becomes easy to put him at the top of your list. Yeah, so my my kinship there lies with Peter Schmeichel. Uh, definitely definitely a, a legend, for sure. Uh, going going again, going with the back line, Nemanja Vidic had probably the hardest head of any living being <laughs> of all time. <laughs> and I think that alone deserves, deserves Hall of Fame status. I mean, like, defensively, offensively, 
Well, that's why I didn't put John Terry on my list, because like I said, in my mind, you needed to be the best in the league at your position, and I think Nemanja Vidic was a superior defender, superior center back to John Terry. I mean, pretty much Terry made a career being second best because Vidic was just such can a powerhouse. I, can I just say that, that I'm the United fan, and Bernie's chosen two United players? It, it happens. It ha- I, you know, the, the, prem, the prem isn't quite isn't quite my league and then uh, i'll switch it up for that last one as dennis Bearcamp. i don't i don't think we get the type of attackments we have today with with the way Messi plays his attackment the way we have neymar playing attackment i don't think kevin de bruyne i don't think we get that without Bearcamp coming out and really changing the attacking midfield position yeah i mean he was the he was the flying dutchman before wesley schneider like i mean he 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 could do it all. He yeah. could score from anywhere. There wasn't a pass he couldn't make. Uh, the skills, the dribbling. I mean, he was a t- the complete package there. And I agree with you. Redefined that position. Yeah. Pioneer as a number 10. Absolutely pioneer. Well, it'll be curious to see where the voting pans out for this. Again, you're not going to go wrong. This list of players. I mean, the Ferdinand brothers are on there. Steven Gerrard, Roy Keane. Michael Owen. I mean, I imagine everybody featured on this list will make their way into some class, but we only got six more slots for this inaugural class, and I'm sure we'll all be watching with bated breath to see how it pans out. Tom, we want to thank you for swinging by again, man. Yeah, we had, for we had such a good time. It's crazy how time flies on here. Yeah. And obviously, we will be looking forward to bringing you back as, uh, as a regular here with the Balls Over the Top podcast. Yeah, thank you, guys. Hope to be back soon. All righty, buddy. You cheers. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that's fun. Always a good time when Tom swings by the show. But we can now make our way out of his area of expertise and into the Bundesliga. Yeah, something I know a little bit about. We don't have a ton to talk about there because they were on a break this past weekend. Yeah, we just had some uh, DFB Pokal matches. You know, the classic classic German tournament uh, for the league. And it was... It was a couple pretty interesting games. Yeah, you can certainly say that. On the first hand, we saw Red Bull Leipzig notch a 2-1 to victory over Werder Bremen. Yeah, this has been part of Werder Bremen's skid. They haven't been great these past couple weeks and hasn't been a, a ton of signs that they're turning their form around, falling to Red Bull Leipzig 2-1. The other matchup, and honestly, it's a little disappointing that it happens in the semifinal as opposed to a final matchup, Dortmund faced off against Holstein Kiel. Holstein Kiel, you might not recognize the name. and well, They were the Cinderella you. story from this tournament. Yeah, they beat Bayern Munich to get here in the snow, and it was an impressive run for them, but they come up against the Dortmund side, and Dortmund does not back down at all. They put five past Kiel and seal their way into a finals appearance against Red Bull Leipzig. Yeah, it should be a big matchup. Two of the biggest teams in the Bundesliga facing off for some hardware and neither of the teams listed are Bayern Munich so it's a breath of fresh air it is it's strange to talk about but that doesn't mean we don't have Bayern Munich stuff to talk about because uh you know we've talked about David Alba leaving the club and he's been there quite some time well there's another stalwart of that of that Bayern side leaving again Yes, Javi Martinez, the Spanish international who arrived all the way back in 2012 from Athletic Bilbao, has been a total powerhouse playing either as defensive midfielder or even occasionally as center back for this side. He leaves with an incredible legacy. I mean, when Bayern close in on this championship 
which seems inevitable at this point. He will be the only player in Bundesliga history to win the title every year that he was in the league, which is remarkable. It's crazy. He came from Bilbao for $40 million, which in today's money is chump change. You, you buy that well, with a you buy a reserve player with that, but at the time for Bayern Munich, that was a record transfer fee. Yeah, it was a crazy amount. It seemed unfathomable that they would drop that much, and yet I'm sure they're glad they did. Again, he's pretty much won every trophy there is to win: Champions League, Bundesliga title, the Pokal Cup. I mean, he's been. His trophy cabinet's got to be... That's probably why he's leaving. It's yeah. probably like, guys, I, I have nowhere to put this. Yeah, I can't. I'm done. I, I'm not building any more shelves. We also saw another uh, German stalwart on his way out. Yeah, and this one coming, you know, not from... from yeah, just, it was a little bit of controversy. Yeah, it, 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 it's bad news. So, Jens Lehmann, uh, a German goalkeeper probably pretty well-known by a little bit of the older crowd, he gets fired from his position at Hertha after a racist WhatsApp message gets posted on Instagram. Yeah, he sent the message to Dennis Iogo and basically asked him if he was the token black guy of the side. I mean, he didn't use that exact phrasing. He used a German word that yeah. means the same thing. And... Aogo then posted on his Instagram story, I don't even know if he was trying to get Lehman fired, but almost more out of shock. Yeah, it was more like, uh, like A, this probably wasn't meant for me, and B, what the hell? Yeah. And, and it, I, it's a fair question. What the hell? Yeah, you got to wonder what Lehman is thinking in this day and age, especially a, a person, player of his stature. I mean, he's no longer a player, but he was. He's really just... Uh, he works in the media. Exactly. It's like how to fall from grace uh, 101. It's it's say something stupid like that. And yeah. so I don't really have much else to say about it. It, it was a terribly s stupid, insensitive, ignorant comment by Lehman. I think he deserved to be fired. However, it's just dumb. Also, like, I learned what a Totenschwarze was, and I thought I thought that's interesting. It's one word in, in, in Germany there. Something that's one word and it's appalling was this incident. It happened a couple weeks back, but we're we're catching up on Bundesliga stuff. Schalke was relegated. They've had a god awful season. They're absolute dumpster fire. Yeah, they're sitting at thirteen points, only managed two wins this season. Yeah, bad, bad. real bad, and fans are understandably upset. Yeah, relegated for the first time in thirty years. Yeah, it it, it hurts. And it, it's it's coming off the heels of mismanagement, errors, you know, player personality issue. I mean, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. But it it boiled over a couple weeks ago, where we saw literal like videos of two. You just see two people running, and then you see a massive group after them, and you'd be like, "Man, I don't want to be those two guys." Yeah, it's even crazier when you realize that those two guys are. Players from the club, Kolasinac and Mustafi, were literally attacked, I mean, by a violent mob of Schalke fans, outraged by the relegation. They were first pelted with eggs and firecrackers and other objects, and then it just resorted to punching, kicking, and 
I mean, thank goodness these guys are professional athletes who are faster than the average fan because it could have turned really ugly. Yeah. I mean, uglier than it was. It it was really ugly, Yeah, it could have been a disaster. Yeah, for the fans, you go up against Klesniak, that dude is a beast i would not i wouldn't chase him just start if, just start kicking fans yeah like. i wouldn't chase him if he was the golden snitch i don't know what the hell these fans were thinking yeah so hopefully we'll be able to shift our attention back to actual league play this weekend i mean it's a super tight race right now for the top four only three points separate third place through fifth place actually it's two points 57 points for wolfsburg 56 points for eintracht frankfurt 55 points for borussia dortmund so a really really tight finish here and it's a shame that these barbaric actions by fans take attention away from the game on the pitch as opposed to or you know which is where the attention really should be well let's take it from the bundesliga to the boot we've got seria action yeah, we got Serie A option, uh, 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 Serie A action this weekend, and we saw champions crowned of the league as Antonio Conte's side, Inter Milan, was able to hoist the trophy, cement their spot at the top of the table, and really this is monumental. I mean, it ends Juventus's nine-year run of championships, and it brings the Serie A title back to Milan, and. I'm thrilled. I love Antonio Conte as a coach. I love most of these. I like to call them Premier League rejects on the squad. I mean, Romelu Lukaku had an unbelievable season to remember, just played out of his mind. And we also saw the emergence of, you know, Hakimi. We saw Christian Eriksen get his career back on track, it seems. The dynamic play of Latoro Martinez. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, pretty much front to back. This Ashley whole side. Young even still looking serviceable despite being a million years old despite being anything but young despite being nominated for the premier league hall of fame (laughs) just kidding so it was really a big weekend for the milanese side however there's still a lot more scores to be settled in the serie a because second through seventh is a total cluster Oh, it's a mess. Currently, as it is, five points separate second place Atalanta between sixth place Lazio, with Juventus in third, tied with Milan at 69. Nice. Napoli at 67, and Lazio down at 64. But keep in mind, Lazio does have that extra game in hand, so they could find themselves, even with Napoli in fifth place, in what is going to be a sprint for the finish. By the way, I didn't note this. Atalanta also has 69 points. Yeah. So there's a three-way 69 going on. Yeah, there's a three-way 69 going on in that second-place spot. And, I, I mean, even on goal differential, it's pretty close. Atalanta's got the lead right now. They're plus 39. Juve right behind them. They're plus 36. AC Milan is where we see a little bit of a drop-off because they're only plus 21. And, I mean, it matters for the end of the season. But it it's a very interesting tight race even down to the tiebreakers. Yeah, so it's definitely going to be worth keeping an eye on. All of those six clubs in the conversation have aspirations to be playing in Europe this year. It seemed like it was going to be AC Milan's return to European competition, but not necessarily so fast. They've really collapsed over the last two months. Did manage to get back on the horse this past weekend 
with a 2-0 win over Benevento. But Napoli and Lazio are hot on their trails. And, I mean, really, right now, Milan seems to me to be the worst form out of these five teams. Just about. In other news, seventh place side Roma, the last of the big seven teams of Italy, made a big signing this past weekend, and it wasn't necessarily on the pitch, but rather on the sidelines. Yeah, Jose Mourinho. We've seen him before. He's back again. The magician. He makes his return to Italy, where he's had great success in the past, and they claim, though, that he is going to be putting this in air quotes, the long-term solution for their managerial issue. It's like, have you looked at the tape? I don't know if Mourinho's ever lasted more than three seasons at a job. Yeah. So I'm curious to see if this is a match made in heaven or if he's going to be on the move again before we know it. But a big name, drama, but often also success tend to follow him wherever he goes. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with this Roma side and if they crack open the coin purse and, and really, really flush them out with a little bit of extra talent for that somewhat aged out Roma side. We also still have changes to the Italian Cup as they cut the format from normal 78 teams that kind of span all the way down through, I believe, the fourth league of Italian football. Now to only 40 teams, it will only consist of Serie A and Serie B teams. This to get rid of a lot of the earlier matches, to lighten the match load for a lot of these bigger clubs, and prevent things like injury and just kind of wasted time. I mean, a lot of those matches don't even generate that much revenue because it's such a foregone conclusion when... A fourth division side is facing off against Juve. Exactly. So... I mean, I can't say I'm opposed to this. Obviously, everybody loves the Cinderella run of a lower division team or or just the David Goliath-type story when there's a major upset. However, I can't say I argue tremendously with this decision. Here's the thing, man. It's really tone-deaf. I mean, we just talked about how smaller sides already have a brutal road to European competition. And now we have an Italian cup, which is meant for all of Italy, and you you cut, I mean, it nearly in half, and you also cut entirely all the teams in the lower divisions. You cut everyone from the Serie C and the Serie B, or Serie D. Well, definitely tone deaf, but I mean, I think a lot of the Italian leadership is still quite tone deaf. I mean, keep in mind... Juventus and AC Milan have still not formally withdrawn from the Super League. Matter of fact, they're facing potential multiple-year bans from UEFA. Those two sides, as well as the Spanish sides that have yet to formally withdraw, could be facing up to a two-year ban from the Champions League, which is the maximum allotted penalty that UEFA can dish out to a club. Because they're being still tone-deaf and digging their heels in the sand and saying they want to... believe it or not, still go forward with the plans for the Super League despite the universal opposition that it faced. Oh, and then part B of this, this, the problem I have with it is the fact that you have, you know, the Milans, you have Juve, you have even clubs like Roma, where they have the reserves. They don't have to be playing their their best 11 in, in the opening weeks of the Cup. And getting getting those guys actual competition, live competition, even if it's just in an Italian Super Cup that you don't 
particularly care about, I think that's it's an important part of the the season's process. It's part of getting everybody game time action. And when when you cut that down, then all you all you see is the same eleven. I think that's I think it's short sighted, and I think it's in the long term detrimental not only to those small clubs that are now being excluded, but to the big clubs who don't get to see their reserve guys go into action, you know, in those early cup matches in the season. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely maybe a thing that they might need to continue to tweak or figure out because I think these kinds of clear-cut overriding solutions are not the answer. And, like, you couldn't cut it down to 60 and then just cut the Seri, you know, Seri C and Seri D clubs instead of having 28 from C and, and 9 from D. Couldn't you, or even just take 18, take 9 from both of those Or I divisions. wouldn't be opposed to a play-in tournament between the C and D to put 5 to 10 teams into the competition. You know, they do that with the FA Cup and with a lot of the other domestic league cups where they say, okay, guess what? If you're in the Premier League, you don't have to play the first two rounds because there's it's just going to be you clobbering basically a beer league team. Right. You know, and so they let those rounds kind of, and those teams kind of sort out, let let the cream rise to the top, and then they... And then inject them into the, into the cup. Exactly. There, there are ways around this beyond just a clear cut and removal. Yeah, and because the money to those small clubs does matter for these competitions. Well, let's make our way out of Italy and over to Spain, where the top of the table is certainly heating up. Yeah, and despite their best efforts, Atletico Madrid are staying on top. They stay at top this past week by the skin of their butts and one lucky post after a missed penalty gives them the 1-0 victory against Elche Club Football. It's amazing. I mean, with you know the the two sides that we've seen out of Atletico Madrid this season. In the beginning, Suarez looked like a brand new player. Diego Simone looked like he could do no wrong, and then Joao Felix was playing was playing like the, the prodigy the that everybody thought he was going to be. And then it just all came pretty much to a grinding halt. Yeah, it's unbelievable. They, they've they been in a free fall for a couple months now, and they're just doing barely enough to scrape by at the top of the table, and they got some help. We did see Barcelona over the last week. We saw them make up that game in hand that we've been talking about for the last month or so, and they went one and one. They actually dropped a game to Granada. They lost that game two to one. Granada Stunning Barcelona getting two late goals, one in the 64th, one in the 79th, to beat Barcelona 2-1, to one, ending their incredible run, and putting a pretty big dent in their title hopes, because at the time, the title was in their own destiny. Had they won out, they would overtake Atletico regardless of what Atletico or Madrid did the rest of the year. Now, they are going to need some help. The top three in the table currently sits Atletico, 76 points, Madrid and Barcelona even at 74, and Sevilla at 70. So they really can't be ruled out. But again, they're going to need a lot to happen to leapfrog all three of those teams and lift the trophy. Yeah, well, Barcelona is just having struggles with the league all over. Some of them are stemming from the biggest player in the world possibly having a little barbecue. 
Yes, apparently Lionel Messi hosted a barbecue at his house, including teammates, spouses, etc. But it was only only teammates and spouses. Yeah, but this is still in violation of the COVID protocols that are going on, and so he is being investigated. Well, they're investigating to see if they broke COVID COVID protocols. However, by the league's written doctrine on the protocols, all these players are what they call part of the same bubble. So you are allowed to have gatherings of groups more than six. It's you know, it's been a little bit of a spectacle. I don't I don't have a particular beef with Messi having a barbecue, especially since barbecues are typically outdoor activities and I imagine social distancing was still possible for these guys. And so, yeah, we have a really big weekend coming up this weekend as we see all four of the top four teams in the league facing off against one another. We start out with Barcelona versus Atletico on Saturday in a match that has incredible title implications. And then we have Real Madrid versus Sevilla on Sunday. The schedule makers really got it right with this one leading up to the last four matches of the season we have ones that will virtually decide how this top four shakes out. Who do you uh, who do you favor in these matchups? I will say I think we might get a surprise out of Sevilla on Sunday. Real Madrid's coming off a pretty rough Champions League exit, a deflating exit for sure. Um, you know, Sergio Ramos didn't look great in his return back. I mean, it's still Sergio Ramos, so. In league play, you know, that's always a pretty solid conclusion that he's going to be at least serviceable, but hasn't looked like the Sergio Ramos that controls and dominates and, and pushes the ball forward. I think we see Sevilla kind of shock Real Madrid and kind of put that damper on any any possible title hope. Yeah, I mean, this Sevilla side has been dangerous, especially since they added Papu Gomez in the January transfer window. They have been on a tear, and I, I'm not... I'm not disagreeing with you. I think if there is one upset we're going to see, it would be Sevilla upsetting the Real Madrid side. I do think, on the other hand, though, I could very, very easily see a draw between Atletico and Barcelona, which, if that were the case, would create just the ultimate jam up top there. I mean, especially, especially if we saw Sevilla pull off that upset. It would then be something like three points separating first through fourth heading into the final three matches of the season. Definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, this Atletico side has risen to the occasion when they've had to. But they've also squandered numerous opportunities. I mean, yeah, they, they should, this shouldn't even be in the competition, or, or in the conversation, rather. They had what was approaching like a 20-point lead at one point this season, and, and Barcelona and Real Madrid were floundering. I mean, I'm pretty sure Barcelona was in 12th place at one point. And so, obviously, it's not likely, uh, or rather, I, I think... The smart money would be with Barcelona getting the result here, but I wouldn't be shocked to see a draw. Wouldn't be shocked to see Atletico pull it out, but I think the expectations from many and rightfully so is that Barcelona is going to rise to the occasion and probably plant themselves as the team to catch heading into the final three weeks of the season. But I tell you, as much as there's drama at the top, there is also drama at the bottom. While we do see Ibar sitting down at 26 points and facing relegation right in the mouth. 
The bottom of the table in La Liga is incredibly crowded. I mean, if it tells you anything, only 10 points separate last place and 14th place. When you consider the fact, too, that Ibar is four points down from 19th place, it's even a crazier short rope as it becomes six points separating 19th place side. Well, there's a tie at 30 points with uh, with Aiche and Huesca. But then, I mean, Valladolid is, uh, I believe that's Valladolid. Yeah, Real Valladolid is in 17th place with only 31.1 point ahead of them. Alves is only also tied at 31 points, one point ahead of them. So that's four teams within one point of each other of the relegation zone. And then Getafe is only three points above that with Valencia two points above them. So, I mean, really it's shocking that we could be talking about Valencia in the relegation conversation and a lot would need to go wrong for them to fall that far. But the fact that one point separates 16th and 19th, Ooh. And only three points above them is 15th place. Ooh. We're going to have a lot of drama at both ends of the table in La Liga. And it's definitely going to be worth watching. Again, even some of those matches that really wouldn't have caught our eyes before suddenly take on a new meaning. Yeah, suddenly become basically relegation playoffs. Well, one person who won't be sticking around with Valencia to see that they stay up in La Liga it's going to be manager Jave Garcia, because he's out. Yeah, and this is not him being unreasonable. He was pretty much voicing his opposition to the fact as the that the club made no permanent signings. This, too, after selling off, again, we mentioned earlier, I mean, they got rid of Danny Parejo. I mean, this, the Which side, would be enough to side, make me want to leave. Yeah, the side has been selling off talent for a while. Yeah, and... he's been displeased since September. Yeah, and so they, his club moves on from him, and they are also having their worst se- worst season in about 25 years. So it's definitely, no, about 35, 35 years. years. Yeah. yeah. And so it's definitely not a great match. Hopefully Valencia, a, a side with so much history and lore with, with, I mean, great fans, great, usually get great results. Hopefully we'll see them rebound coming into next season, but... It's going to be with a different man at the helm. We're also going to pop over real quick to just take a glance at the Ligue 1 table because, believe it or not, with only three matches left in the season, PSG is not in first place. Oh my god. Granted, their lead is down to, or their deficit is only one point. They are still one point behind Lille. Lille at 76 points, PSG at 75 points. And so I always like to root against PSG. I mean, they've won like a dozen titles in a row. And so it'll be, well, not in a row. I know Monaco had one recently, but regardless. Yeah. It's good to see them not win. I, I love rooting against. They're my favorite team to hate in Europe. And so I am rooting heavily for Lille to hold on here. They got a big match against Lens coming up on Friday to kick off the League One weekend. Meanwhile, PSG is going to be facing a serviceable Ren side. And uh, then we go into the last two games of the season where Lille has St. Etienne, PSG has Reims, and Brest versus PSG, and Angers versus Lille. So all of those matches on paper, you would expect the favored teams to win. And so if that's the case, Lille will be hoisting the trophy in a few weeks, but oh it's probably going to come down to the wire. 
And really, you can't count out Monaco or Lyon, each of which, with two wins and the right results other way, could find themselves in that conversation as well. So I know we often skip over the League One. There's usually not that much to talk about because it's PSG whooping everybody, but... Well, there's also not a lot of demand. I mean, you're not you're not getting your Ligue 1 games on your ESPN Plus or your... NBC HBO, or HBO any of Max. That. Yeah, so we're not really getting it here, but it is it is interesting, and it you know it has Champions League and Europa, you know, exactly. I mean, so. I mean the top three or top two teams guarantee Champions League. The third place plays in Champions League qualifiers, and then fourth place guarantees Europa, with even fifth place being in Europa League qualifiers. So this is a league that gets pretty much just as much weight in Europe as the other major leagues, and yet. Uh, it doesn't always have the parity of competition, so it's good to see some of the not-as-big-money sides, seeing Lille, seeing Lyon, step up and compete with the big boys. Absolutely. And with that, everybody, I do think it's that time of night for us to take our ball and to head home. Let's hit the showers. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Balls Over the Top podcast. As always, you can find us on our socials at at B-O-T-T podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And this podcast is available everywhere podcasts are available. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If you want to find us on a podcasting site, we're there. Yeah, and if you could, if it's available, depending on your platform, smash that like or subscribe or even just throw the link up, share it with some friends. We really appreciate it, guys. We do. Thanks. Thanks.